the passage that we read is set historically several hundred years before the coming of Christ Jesus when the people of Judah had been carried away to Babylon into exile and then they had received permission to return and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And having accomplished the task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, the events recorded for us in Nehemiah 8 and 9 unfold. And so there's been this process, it's been, frankly, in the beginning, unlikely that the king of Babylon would allow them to do this, but nevertheless, they received permission. There's been opposition to the work. They've been trusting the Lord. Finally, they build it. They finish it. And here we come to Nehemiah 8 and 9. Ezra the scribe brings the book of the law of Moses to read in the people's hearing. For both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. Now this is not the main point tonight, but look here at who is assembled. The men, the women, and all who could understand what they heard. I think it's generally a good practice to try to work up to having our kids sit in and listen to the sermon. We obviously, we provide the wiggle room for babies and small children who can't sit all the way through. But nevertheless, the end goal is that they would be among those who can understand. They might not understand everything that's said, but nevertheless, they can understand something. And as they get older, that increases more and more. Certainly, I think we could say that teenagers could be numbered among those who can understand. I think it's fair to say even that 10-year-olds can understand quite a bit. And down and down we might go, and different kids might be different, but... I think we should aim that they would be among the assembly of the people who hear the word of the Lord. But that's a side note. I digress. Coming back to this, they bring the book of the law of Moses to read in the hearing of all who can understand. What is the book of the law of Moses? Is it simply Exodus chapter 20 where the Ten Commandments are? Is it Exodus as a whole? What the book of the Law of Moses is, is the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So this phrase, the book of the law, or it's going to be referred to later on in this passage, the law. It doesn't actually literally just mean the law, as in imperatives. It doesn't actually literally just mean the Ten Commandments. It doesn't even mean those things that you must do. It simply means the revelation of the Lord. So you find in the New Testament, the Old Testament referred to as the Law and the Prophets, or the Law of the Prophets and the Writings. It's just a way of just gathering up God's revelation. It's called the Law in this section here. And so when they read the Law, they're reading, strictly speaking, Law and Gospel. We'll come to that in a second, but just... For the purposes of tonight, it's important to know that when they're reading the book of the law, they don't just mean imperatives. So Ezra comes and reads, and all these men help him. 
give the sense, as it says in Nehemiah 8 and verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, or in the footnote to the ESV, it says with interpretation or paragraph by paragraph. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So this might be one of the earliest obvious references to expository preaching. They're reading the law and they're giving the sense so that the people understood the reading. They're helping people understand what the Torah says. And all the people wept. All the people wept. That's in verse 9 of Nehemiah 8. These people were lamenting over the storyline of their people in bygone times. And they were lamenting over their own sinfulness. I read later from, uh, later in the month, Nehemiah 9 records an event later in the same month where they pray that lengthy prayer that I read just a few moments ago. And we see here that they are weeping lamenting over the storyline of their people in Nehemiah 9. Look at verse 2, which is a summary. The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. That's a summary of what follows in the prayer. In verse 16, they talk about how they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey God's commandments. In verse 26, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets. In verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. In 32 to 35. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. You see that they're lamenting not only over what their fathers did long ago, but also what they have done. And they see themselves in the same trajectory, in the same vein as their fathers who rebelled against God. And this is what they're lamenting over. This is why they were weeping back in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 9. There's continuity, of course, though it's later in the month. There's continuity, of course, between their prayer in 9 and the reading of the law in 8. In fact, it was the reading of the law in 8 that led them through the month to celebrate the Feast of Booths and to give consideration to all the things that they had heard. And finally, out comes this prayer. So the reason that they wept was for their sins and the sins of their fathers. Christian, do you weep over your sinfulness? 
and the sinfulness of your fathers, the sinfulness of the church? Do you lament? Do you sorrow over your sinfulness? At times you ought to. As Ecclesiastes tells us, there is a time to weep. There is a time to weep. The law contains the law. As I said earlier, God spells out for us in the pages of Scripture what we ought to be. As they would have read Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, as they were reading through the Torah, they would have read of God's Ten Commandments. And they would have been convicted as lawbreakers. They would have read all of the ways in which they had failed to keep all of the other imperatives, which were outworkings of the Ten Commandments. They would have seen how short they fell. Anybody who thinks highly of themselves, anybody who thinks that they are fairly righteous, simply is not acquainted with God's law well enough. And so what happened here was that these people were exposed to God's law. And it drove them into a deep sorrow for their shortcomings, for their failures. In like manner, the law ought to drive us to our knees or flatten us out prostrate on our faces before God. Don't miss the contrast in Nehemiah 9. I'm not going to read the whole thing again. But don't miss the contrast between God's righteousness, provision, forgiveness, grace, mercy, steadfast love, forbearance, might, and awesomeness. Verses 8, 13, 14, 15, 17, 30, and 32 on the one hand. And the sins of the people on the other. Right is right and wrong is wrong. No matter who a sin is committed Against, But in a sense, how much more wrong when a sin is committed against somebody so good? Consider just an example of this. I'm not saying stealing is right, but we all have a soft spot in our hearts for Robin Hood. If somebody were to go into a drug dealer's house and find a stack of bills and take it, and distribute it to those who had need. Stealing is stealing. Theft is theft. But we would be more sympathetic to that person than the one who steals, say for example, from his mother, or from his grandmother. The way that God's righteousness, provision, forgiveness, grace, mercy, steadfast love, forbearance, might, and awesomeness are recounted in Nehemiah 9 serves to show just how wicked the people of Israel really have been all the way through. First he talks about the period of the exodus where God brings them out and brings them into their own land and then they rebel. Then he talks about the period of the judges and how over and over again they rebel. And then finally God has sent the northern uh, tribes sent Assyria upon the northern tribes and sent Babylon upon the southern tribes and here they are now in a big mess again God spells out for us in the pages of scripture what we ought to be as well as who he is 
and in view of who He is and in view of who we are, we ought to, from time to time, really sorrow and really weep over our own sinfulness and over the sinfulness of our fathers, over the sinfulness of the church. It ought to be something that really wrecks us. However, the law also contains the gospel. The book of the law does not only contain imperatives, but also indicatives. It doesn't always speak to us of what we must do, but it also speaks to us of what God has done. If we were perpetually weeping, if we were always sorrowing, if we were continuously lamenting, we would be implying by our behavior, by our conduct, that the bad outweighs the good. Remember Sunday morning sermon on Philippians 4.4. We need a joy that is heavier than our sorrow. Rejoice in the Lord always. For God's people, there is more right than wrong. This is why God's people are commanded in Nehemiah 8.10 not to be grieved because it was a day of celebration for them. God had acted graciously again in returning some of these people to the land and allowing them to finish the wall. The dominant theme of the day was not how wicked the Israelites had been, but how gracious God had been in allowing them to return to the land and accomplish this goal of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. It was not to be, therefore, an occasion of, well, yes, the wall is built, but there's so much else wrong. Rather, it was to be an occasion of, yes, there is so much wrong. But by God's grace, we are here in the land, and the wall has been built. Praise the Lord. Christian, what is your attitude and your approach to life? Well, yes, I'm saved, but there's so much else wrong. And so I go around moping all the time. I'm so sad. I just grieve all the time. I'm so sinful. I'm so wicked. The church is so impure. So much liberalism out there in the church, in politics. There's so many problems. The world's just going to pot. Yes, I'm saved, but how could I be happy? Look at everything that's going on all around us in the world. I feel it my Christian duty to be miserable. (laughs) Or... Yes, there is a lot wrong. And there are a lot of problems. But I'm justified. I'm adopted. I'm being sanctified. I'm looking forward to an eternal inheritance. And not just me, but a whole bunch of us. And we get together Lord's Day by Lord's Day and we worship. And we're plodding along and we're pressing on and we love each other and we're helping each other out. And this is happening not only here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, but in other local churches in Barbados. And in the region, and in this hemisphere, and all the way around the world. And Christ is purifying His bride, and one day He's coming back for her. And so yes, there are a lot of problems in the world. But I'm rejoicing in the Lord. 
because God's revelation doesn't only tell me of the law, but it also tells me of the gospel. And for the Christian, the good outweighs the bad. Which is why we can actually rejoice in the Lord always. Because there is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. There is no cumulative total of suffering that weighs more on the scale than the cumulative total of good that is given us as Christians. And so rejoicing in the Lord is not a reality denying sticking our heads in the sand like an ostrich and just being chipper and bouncy and playful, as John Piper says. Rejoicing in the Lord is a reality embracing, look at everything that's wrong, but saying there's a gospel that's even better than all that bad. There's a God in heaven who is even greater than the whole sum total of the world's rebellious system and everything that's breaking apart. And everything is going to be made right in Christ Jesus. And so I look at everything and I see everything. My eyes are wide open and I rejoice anyway. As I said on Sunday, with defiant joy. We defy the sorrow in our lives and the difficulty in our lives and rejoice anyway. With a transcendent joy that is bigger and heavier and deeper than whatever the sorrow is in our lives. And so the law, as in the imperatives, the duties, what we should be individually, what the church should be collectively, what this world as a whole should be, ought to make us weep from time to time as we look at ourselves, as we look at the church, as we look at the world and we lament, wow, there's such a big gap between what we ought to be and what we actually are. That ought to make us cry from time to time. But the emphasis of our lives as Christians ought to be joy. The good outweighs the bad. And here's a principle to factor into your plans for the new year. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10. He, Ezra says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now listen, our circumstances are very different than the circumstances of these people here. We didn't just finish building a wall and we're not just returning from exile in Babylon and so on and so forth. But having explained to you what's going on in this passage, we come to this principle, which is just a general principle, a transferable principle, a maxim for God's people. The joy of the Lord is your strength. John Gill says, the joy which has the Lord for its object and comes from Him is the cause of renewing spiritual strength so as to run and not be weary, walk and not faint in the ways of God. So we ought to rejoice in the Lord, as I was saying on Sunday. 
The law ought to make us weep from time to time, but there is a time also to set aside weeping. And in fact, the dominant note of our lives, according to Philippians 4, 4, ought to be to rejoice in the Lord. And this principle holds true for all of God's people. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Would you like to run and not be weary and walk and not faint in the ways of God? In 2020. Then rejoice in the Lord. As we shift our emphasis. Emphasis. From what's wrong. To what's right. From who we are. To who God is. From his law. To his gospel. We find strength for the Christian life. Let me say that one more time. As we shift our emphasis. From what's wrong to what's right. As we shift our emphasis from who we are or from what we are not to who God is. As we shift our emphasis from God's law to God's gospel, we find strength for the Christian life. Now, emphasis doesn't make what is not emphasized disappear. If I say emphasis, are each of the syllables still in the word? Or if I say gospel, are all the syllables still there? Yes. So to emphasize what's right over what's wrong is not to ignore or minimize or eliminate what's wrong. It's simply to emphasize what's right. To emphasize who God is, is not to deny or negate who we are, or rather, who we are not, what we are not. To emphasize the gospel is not to negate the law. There's a lot of talk, there's been a lot of talk over the last decade or so, about being gospel-centered. What does it mean? The way that I understand it is that whatever is most weighty and important in your life is what your life is centered around. So we might say someone is a career-centered person. Or we might say someone is a family-centered person. The encouragement from the theological pundits over the last decade or so is to be gospel-centered. And rightly understood, this is good advice. It doesn't, or at least it ought not to mean gospel-centered to the exclusion of the law, as if the law had no place in our Christian lives. It is, however, at its best, a phrase which encourages us not to dwell on our shortcomings revealed by the law. Not to just mope around all the time, just sad about how we fall short of the glory of God. Not to just have a pity party for ourselves and for the people of God who are just such miserable sinners. But to just forthrightly acknowledge, yes, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But, but... 
The Lord has laid on Christ Jesus the iniquity of us all. And so the gospel is central in our minds. It's emphasized not to the negation or the elimination of the law. It's a matter of emphasis. When this happens and we emphasize the gospel in our lives and the gospel becomes so foundational to us, so important to us, so weighty to us, that we might say instead of being a career-centered person, instead of being a family-centered person, most fundamentally, I am a gospel-centered person. When this happens, our pursuit of holiness happens in a gospel context. And so we're no longer driven to obedience exclusively by duty, but we're also able to embrace the delight of living according to God's prescription, His design, as we have become new creations, wrought by God's Spirit, having had the work of Christ brought to bear on our lives by that same Spirit. We can pursue obedience to God's law. We can try to close that gap between what we are not and what we ought to be. But we can try to close it instead of just with merely just duty and willpower and discipline and diligence and effort. Notice I said merely, not that those don't have a place in our Christian lives, but we add in this gospel context which is like a secret weapon. It's like an ace up our sleeve. The joy of the Lord is your strength. There are times when you're not feeling the joy of the Lord and you have to just grind it out. There are times when you're not feeling the joy of the Lord and you don't say, well, I don't feel joy, so I guess I won't obey God. That's not how the Christian life works. But listen, if you can possess that joy which has the Lord for its object and which comes from Him, then you will run and not be weary. You will walk and not faint in the ways of God. And you will find it true, this principle laid down here, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. We are to focus on We are to emphasize the gospel over the law. Or the gospel over whatever else it is that we might otherwise emphasize. We must rejoice in God and who He is to us in the gospel day by day. And we will find that we will have the spiritual strength so as to run and not be weary to walk and not faint in the ways of God yes there is a lot of wrong in the world there's a lot of stuff that's very messed up even in our own lives and families situations but Jesus came to live die and rise So that whoever eats of Him, the bread of life, will not be hungry. So that whoever drinks the water that He gives Him will never thirst. 
so that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And that is a joy that's heavier and deeper and bigger that enables us to rejoice in the Lord always. Enables us to set aside the weeping, de-emphasize the weeping, and emphasize the joy as the people here in Nehemiah 8 were instructed to do in this case. It enables us to have that joy always in any circumstance, which as it says here in Nehemiah 8.10, is our strength. George Mueller said, The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. As we think forward to this next year, we ought to hear the imperative rejoice in the Lord always and endeavor to do that. But we also ought to hear the attached promise that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so as we think about rejoicing in the Lord in 2020, we also find a hope set before us that we might run and not be weary, that we might walk and not faint in the ways of God should we find ourselves rejoicing in the Lord. May it be our aim also, as it was Mueller's, to make the first great and primary business that we attend to every day to have our souls happy in the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord always that the joy of the Lord might be our strength.